1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and AM member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going.
0: If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone.
1: If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash fangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests.
0: Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Surely everyone else knows why we're throwing 27 straw effigies of bound men into a river. It's been months since the siege started. You've gone from eating the last of your stores to eating rats in the street. It won't be long till you're eating your neighbors. You know how sieges go. You hear the besiegers when you go to sleep at night, the goths outside the storied walls of Rome singing their wild barbarian songs and burning their dead in great pyres that choke the sky. When you take your turn on the walls, you look down on the churned mud, and the horses and the heads on pikes and the men patrolling that line, and you wonder how all this will end. There are no good answers here. Let them in, and they'll put your family to the sword. Don't, and you'll all starve. The truth is, you don't care who rules you. The Ostrogoths have been in charge for sixty years, before then the Romans, and what difference did it make to your kin? You are a blacksmith, so was your father and his before him. And no emperors gave any of you any help, nor paid you any mind, so you all returned the favor. People say Rome was great once, but you don't think so. You've seen the carvings on the crumbling arches that commemorate old wars, all those bound prisoners. You make pots and pans and horseshoes and leave the swords to other men. You don't like the idea of something you made with your hands going to run a child through in some far-off forest. You lie in your bed and wish for all of this to end. Your wife and children have been whittled down to shadows. You don't know how to look at them anymore. You can't sleep for the singing outside. They're banging sword against shield now in some paean to their god and the noise is unholy. You have a thought. It probably won't work. That old god is probably dead. That old magic drained into the earth. But at least you'll be doing something. You pick up your tools, your chisel and hammer, and you rise from your house and go. Down the cracked streets, you go to the moon-drenched heart of the dead city, to where the ruins rise, the place where the senators once argued and emperors strolled, now full of ghosts and wind. It's not the grandest of the old dead buildings. It's one of the smallest, actually, tucked behind a great construction the size of a trireme. This building is modest, made of brick unadorned, no roof, a door to the west and a door to the east, both padlocked. You've heard the stories about this building. Once its temple stood open for centuries, war pouring down from these open doors in an invisible crimson river that flowed all the way beyond the borders of empire. One of the emperors had it locked shut more than a century ago. But tonight you want the old Romans to rise, the real Romans, the kind that didn't flinch at death. You want them to rise and put their old empire out of its misery. So you kneel in the shadows, set your tools to the locks. They've gone rotten with rust, and it doesn't take long. In a moment, one has fallen, and then the other. You rise to your feet, and you swing open the doors, and a chill arrows down your spine. The enclosure is flooded with moonlight and strange shadows. There is a smell of rot. Ferns grow high from cracks in the floor, and there— Amidst the strange shadows and the ferns and the smell stands the god. Face to the west and face to the east. Hands raised in unreadable gestures. You have a terrible feeling it's been waiting for you. A wind kicks up at your feet. It blows hard and then harder. So hard you can't breathe. You can't stand. You drop to your knees. And then it cuts off and the air is dead as the breath in a corpse's mouth and beyond the walls. The barbarians have stopped singing. You understand what you've done. It was just what you came to do. You've let loose the winds of war. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Minerva and Artemis, Jupiter and Zeus, Venus and Aphrodite. It's easy to get the impression that the Romans just adopted the entire Greek pantheon wholesale, appropriated the whole thing, and gave all the Greek gods new Roman names, but it isn't quite that simple. The Romans did appropriate gods from the Greek pantheon, or perhaps more commonly, combined the qualities of Greek gods with the identities of local gods that they already had. Venus, for example, was a local fertility goddess in Rome before she fused with Aphrodite to become the Venus we know today. However, the Romans also had plenty of gods in their pantheon who didn't come from Greece at all, gods and goddesses who were 100% Roman original. One of those was a god named Janus, or as we like to call him, the Morning Father. Morning Father! He is the god <laughs> of the new year. This is going to drop on December 30th, so it's the appropriate episode for this moment.
1: Yeah, he's the god of beginnings and endings and new starts and terrible 90s songs by Semisonic, you know. Closing
0: time! Every new beginning comes from comes some, from other, some beginnings other beginnings then. Oh, God, that was... T- we should stop. We should stop trying to sing in public. That was terrible.
1: I know. Look, we can make an old year's resolution not to do that in the new year, but we're going to fail.
0: We're going to fail in the first two days. Anyway.
1: Janice! is the two-faced god. You may know him from ancient Roman statues and coins, where he's very recognizable because he has two faces on his head, one facing frontwards and one facing backwards. Sometimes Janus was depicted as having two faces, one on the front of his head and one in the back. Other times he had four faces, entirely too many faces, but the theory here was that he had one face for each of the cardinal directions. Sometimes Both heads or faces were bearded, mature men. Sometimes the one looking back into the past was an older, bearded man, while the one looking into the future was a beardless youth. And that to me is so interesting. I love seeing the different aspects of the gods. Like it just reminds me like sometimes Dionysus is like bearded and mature and other times he's like, very lithe and young, and as if he's gotten the like, care in the world. And other times he's got his beard, and he's got his mirth in his eyes. And even other times he's like kind of mature and bearded, and he's got the big old belly from having all the wine.
0: Yeah, it's like the the gods all kind of live out their timeline at once in this artwork in a, in a weird and interesting way.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. So. As we've said, Janus was the god of beginnings and endings, of dual natures, of terrible ninety songs, of passageways and passage through time. He's the god of thresholds and doorways and gates and the god of change, both concrete and abstract. He's constantly in motion. He's the god who's always just passing through. He's not the god of January, though. That was Juno, Jupiter's wife. Janus may not be a very well known god in the Roman pantheon, but in his time, he was considered one of the most important gods, perhaps more important than Jupiter himself. Today, we're going to tell you why.
0: The mythology of Janus is weird and obscure, and it is not that easy to track down, guys. But I did track down a few things, and here are a few stories I found in strange, weird corners of the internet. The ancient Romans believed that Janus was right there at the founding of their city, that in fact, Before the Romans arrived, even, he ruled the Capitoline Hill, which was where the city was first built. And to talk about his role in the founding, we have to go all the way back to the rape of the Sabine women. This is an ancient story of Rome's founding, and it is a really dark one.
1: The reality is the early founding myths about Rome are very rape-heavy, and they're very dark, and they're taught to your children when they're learning Latin at the age of, what was I, 10, 11, 12, something like that.
0: You were you learned this at the age of 10?
1: I did indeed. Although they didn't call it rape, they called it carried away or carried off.
0: It's weird, it's weird how that little fact of the woman's experience in this myth is just so completely erased that it's like sanitized so you can tell this version to children and then the entire fact of rape is like erased. Like it's really mind-blowing.
1: Well, I mean, the reality is in most of Greek and Roman mythology, the amount of women who are being carried off or carried away or whatever, you know, that's all code for assault. And it's easy when you're a child, especially a kid like me who really loved Greek and Roman mythology and all mythology in general, that's just been my thing. Like, I wasn't understanding what that meant and really... I kind of always glossed over and it wasn't until I was much older that I was like, oh, this is so gross and awful. And as a kid, I was very like immune to the awfulness of it.
0: Yeah, I think that something similar happened to me where I kind of the sources I was reading kind of romanticized that and I really internalized it. And it really took a lot of time for me as an adult to sort of interrogate that in myself. Um, So anyway, we're going to tell you what this myth is in case you don't happen to know
1: it. As we said, you've all been warned, this myth has rape in it.
0: Basically, Rome was founded on a myth of colonization and rape, and that was celebrated as a story that was supposed to tell you things about how strong and warlike and enterprising and manly the original Roman
1: founders were.
0: They were really proud of this myth.
1: So, according to the story, Rome was founded sometime in the 8th century BC by two twins who were raised by wolves and had the manners to show for it, Romulus and Remus, although I would posit it. That is not the wolf's fault. I think wolves are very well-mannered and very well-behaved.
0: I think that probably actually is an insult to wolves. Wolves, wolves on Twitter. We think you guys have great manners. Please don't cancel us. We apologize to wolf Twitter. Wolf talk or wolf TikTok? Wolf TikTok. We love you guys and girls and non-binary wolves. We love you all. Don't eat us, please. That's all we ask. And also, Romulus and Remus were
1: dicks. It's not your fault. I mean, Romulus more so than Remus, but you know, we'll get there.
0: He just didn't get a lot of chance because he died first.
1: <laughs> Let's keep going. By the time the events in this myth happened, Romulus had killed his brother Remus over literally a dispute on which hill to build their city on. And again, this sounds exactly like the sort of thing someone like Romulus would do. So Romulus got his way on which hill to build Rome on, and he became king of this hill. One day, He looked around and realized that his city was full of ne'er-do-wells, bandits, thieves, and other people who had been kicked out of their own communities for just, in general, terrible behavior. All these people around him were single guys because no self-respecting woman wanted to associate with any of them. None of them. Every single woman in, like, a 100-kilometer radius was swiping left on everyone in Rome.
0: They were not touching these dudes with a barge pole. No interest crickets.
1: These were really rough guys who their own societies were like, nah. None of these guys could get laid. It was embarrassing. But here's the thing. You cannot have a civilization, a city, a community, a people if no one wants to date you and reproduce with you.
0: If nobody wants to bang you, then you can't have a community. (laughs) Well,
1: I mean, that's not really that true.
0: Like, if you want a community that is reproducing.
1: And again, we're using an ancient world mindset, so you cannot have a community a country a great civilization if nobody is reproducing like who will carry on your legacy
0: we're not talking about like you know your dnd circle you, could, you don't have to bang everyone in the dnd circle to have a, a
1: community but it doesn't hurt anyway it, <laughs> it, it does help realistically <laughs> can we please talk about rome so we're getting really off this, topic here you really are so <laughs> this was a. Hu- let me just back to the story this was a huge problem How was Romulus' kingdom of not-very-eligible single guys going to reproduce and become an empire? How would they become Rome? How, I ask you, how? Well, the answer, as always, is through shitty, shitty means. Romulus' epic idea for solving his problem was to just take, physically take, women from a neighboring community. The community he picked was the Sabines,
0: Right, because women are property.
1: And you can just physically take them, pick them up, move them from where they are. Right, like a garden gnome. Romulus and his friends decided to host
0: a gigantic festival of Neptune Equester, the god of Neptune of the sea, and Equester, something
1: to do with horses, I don't know. Okay, so Neptune, I'm gonna educate you. So Neptune, the god of the sea, or Poseidon, also created horses. So it's Neptune, god of horses.
0: That's the festival. There were games and competitions and maybe some horse races because he's the god of horses. I'm just making all this up, though. There was probably some apple dunking and carnival rides and cotton candy and all kinds of fun stuff to attract people from surrounding areas. Romulus sat in the dunk tank. He's like, I know what's going to attract people. Dunking my stupid ass in this water.
1: They were literally giving away free crowns and jewels and stuff, so all the women were like, okay, I could like this. Yeah, I'm here for this. I guess I'm free on Saturday, sure. I mean, everyone in Rome had had a bath. They'd all wash their junk.
0: That's nice to hear. So anyway, lots of people from neighboring towns showed up for the festival, including the Sabines. They were like, I guess I'm not doing anything else, sure. Sure. So according to the story, Romulus gave the signal to his mates by doing something complicated with his cloak or whatever. I guess he was like folding it around and then swishing it around himself like a cartoon villain or whatever. I don't know. As soon as he did that, his buddies grabbed whatever Sabine women happened to be standing nearby, 30 of them in total, and kidnapped them, fighting off their brothers and dads and husbands as they did. Of course, the Sabines were extremely not keen on this whole thing, so they quickly assembled to go to war with the Romans to get their female relatives back. But this took some time, and by then, the Sabine women had been, ugh, I can't believe I'm even reading this, raped and forcibly impregnated by these Roman men. And they stepped in between these two armies to mediate peace between their male relatives and the fathers of their children, and that's why women had such a reputation as natural peacekeepers in the roman world and that's why whenever i see that written down anywhere i throw up in my mouth a lot
1: yeah i mean so do i i really feel for these women in so many ways because they're put in a real fucking impossible position here right they know that these men who have kidnapped them who have forcibly impregnated them and raped them and everything else are brutal and gross and care nothing about life and they know that their families are going to come after them and try to bring them home So what do they do? They either step in between these two armies and keep their families alive and maybe keep these Romans from decimating their village and their homeland and their people, because that's what the Romans would do in this point. Or they hope that their their family can beat the Romans. I don't know. I don't know what I would think at that point.
0: Yeah. And I think that sometimes it's presented or I've seen it presented as these women just fell in love with these men because now they had babies with them. That is not the way I read this at all. I think I read it more like this is a survival situation.
1: I've always read this as a survival situation is this is not a love situation and the choice that these women made according to the myth is an impossible choice and it's an awful choice part of me is like well is it just the romans being like we had a better army and these women could see it and obviously they just stepped in and you know whatever or is it how brutal the romans were i don't know i don't know what made them step in and think that their own Brothers and fathers and whatever couldn't beat the Romans and this was a better way to keep them alive.
0: Well, you know, that is a logical thing to think, though, especially if, you know, like nobody wants to get with these men because they're awful and brutal. So they would do anything to anybody.
1: And it's possible that they know that, OK, so once they kill all the men who've come to bring the, the Sabine women home to their, their people, there is no one left to protect the rest of their people and their lands. And the Romans are not going to let that stand. They'll just take it. And we know from Roman history, they will just take it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that lens of the women falling in love with the men and stepping in to mediate peace between these new husbands of theirs and these other family members is very much a story presented like the men would like to believe it. That's a that's a patriarchal lens right there.
1: They're, I mean, there's no other lens to look at it. It's like, oh, these women fell so in love with their captors that rape wasn't bad. Taking them from their family wasn't bad. Forcing them to, like, mediate peace between two people is a pleasure for them because, you know, they see the right of us. Oh,
0: Because women are just natural peacekeepers, and that's what we're good at naturally.
1: Anyway, that's the traditional version of this incredibly disturbing story. But... There's a version where Janus is involved, and according to this version, the Romans tried to kidnap a lot more than 30 Sabine women. Again, unsurprising. To stop them, Janus changed a cold spring to a volcanic hot spring, which exploded all over the place and doused the kidnappers in boiling water and lava, thus rescuing all but 30 of the women. And if that's true, thank you, Janus.
0: Well, I mean...
1: Oh shit, it's gonna get worse, isn't it?
0: There's a backward-facing version of this myth, too. Remember, two heads, Jen. Two faces.
1: In another version of the myth, Janus actually defends the Romans against the Sabines by protecting an important gateway into the city. When the Sabines approach, he turns a cold spring to a hot spring and floods the gateway with boiling water, driving off the invaders. Damn it, Janus! Oh, why couldn't you be better? (laughs) available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
0: So, there's also the myth of Janus and Cardea. And Cardea was another Roman original, the goddess of door hinges. So, Roman doors used pivot hinges, which allowed the door to pivot on a single point at the top and the bottom of the door. And the goddess Cardea was the goddess of that. But before that, she was a nymph and a huntress, kind of like Artemis, except she used javelins instead of arrows. And according to Ovid, she was something of a tease. And I'm going to give you guys another warning. This myth is also rapey. Turns out all the myths about Janice that I found were rapey.
1: Fuck you, Janice. I take it all back.
0: So one thing that apparently happened to Cardea a lot was that guys wanted to get with her because she was such a stone-cold fox. But Cardea was absolutely not interested in any of these guys. Maybe she was attracted to girls. Maybe she was asexual. Maybe she was just really busy right now, want to focus on her work. I don't know. But it was hard to just say no outright because, you know, misogyny, male violence, rape culture, all that stuff. All the reasons you might just want to say, sure, here's my number, and then blow off a guy in the club by, like, you know, pretending to go to the bathroom. Like, that's what this is. Maybe she doesn't have the confidence to be like, no,
1: no, not doing this.
0: I don't think this is a a confidence thing. I think it's like a threat thing. Even women who are really confident might have to mitigate a threat or they just don't know if there's a threat or not, but it's just easier to like slide out of that thing real gracefully than just be like, no, I won't. And then, you know, see what happens. I've done that a lot. Like, you know, I think most women have.
1: Yeah. And I totally I mean, when I was particularly when I was younger, I wouldn't have had the confidence to be like, okay, I would have definitely. Y'all know from me talking about this many times in this podcast, I'm a people pleaser. It'd be real hard for me to not like try and like, OK, yeah, that sounds good. And then disappear gracefully. Like, I don't know how I would do it any other way.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not that I wasn't confident. Like I've had times in my life where I was more or less confident, but it really has more to do with my threat assessment than how confident I am. Mm hmm. But anyway, so the way that I've seen Cardea's story presented a lot is like, oh, she was just a terrible tease, and she would just tease these men. I'm giving this a a different perspective here, because I find Cardea's behavior very relatable. So, Cardea, um... So all these guys would hit on her, and she would not say no directly because, like I said, rape culture, threat assessment, people-pleasing, maybe there was a little bit of that in there, maybe not, I don't know.
1: Power dynamics, I mean, you know.
0: Unbalanced power dynamics, there's all kinds of reasons women do this. So she would be like, yeah, sure, okay, that sounds good, but there's nowhere private to do it here, so follow me.
1: Then she would lead men to a cave and hide so they couldn't find her, and then, while they got lost in the cave, she would escape, so they couldn't rape her. I mean, this is not a, the worst plan.
0: It's one way to deal with a shitty world where this happens a lot. <laughs> <It's>,
1: <laughs> it is. It's a it strategy
0: is. among many strategies.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see a lot of threat levels and danger, but it, it's not the worst plan I've seen in the shitty world.
0: Yeah, she is going off by herself to a cave with these men, so there's that.
1: But she knows the cave pretty well, and, you know... She's on her turf. She's on her own solid ground, and she knows what she's doing. And again, this story is usually presented by the ancient sources as Cardea is being an evil tea, she's leading these men on, but we both fall down very, very much on the side of what she's doing is incredibly relatable, and she's trying to look out for her safety in a world that does not value it, and in a world where no is not an answer that men will listen to. Yeah. So, Janice, as we all know, has two faces— One in the back and one in the front. And so when Cardea led him into the cave, he could see immediately with his back-facing face what she was up to. And he grabbed her before she could hide. Because Janice is gross and terrible and I take it all back. Fuck you, Janice.
0: Janice is gross and terrible. That's That's the takeaway. What the
1: fuck are we doing? So after Janice had raped her... He gave her this consolation prize, which was Dominion over the Hinge, which, because he was the god of doorways, was part of his domain. I mean, talk about keeping someone literally under your thumb in this place. Ugh. This is really fucked up. We warned you guys. So that's how Cardea became the goddess of hinges and had to live in the dominion of her rapist. Fuck you, Janice. Well, this has been fun. Take it to the darkest possible timeline. You're welcome. So happy new year.
0: You know, I keep saying I'm going to do like a light fun episode someday and it keeps not being that.
1: Anyway. (laughs) In another myth, Janice was married to a nymph named Camasine. No word on whether this was supposed to be the same person as Cordea or someone else, but here we go. Camasine and Janice had a son named Tiberinus who fell into the Tiber. So that's how the Tiber got its name. And it's also how Tiberinus became the god of the Tiber River. He was a very important god in the Roman pantheon, too.
0: So here's a weird sidebar here about how the Romans worshipped Tiberinus, which is actually kind of relevant because some historians believe that at one point in history, Tiberinus and Janus may have been the same god or Janus might have been the god of the Tiber River. It's a little complicated. And the rites the Romans used to worship Tiberinus were some of the oldest performed in the city, maybe older than the city of Rome itself. Here's how it worked. In May, a procession of Vestal virgins and various city officials would make its way around to 27 sacred sites around the city of Rome. And at each one, they would pick up a straw effigy of a man with his hands tied behind his back. These were called the argai. When they collected all 27, they went to the oldest bridge in Rome, the Pons Sublicius, which, according to popular lore, was built in the 600s BC, but nobody really knew for sure because there was no record of when it was built. It could be a lot older than that. We don't fucking know. We're Romans. We have no idea. And they tossed the dummies, the argai, into the water. It's said that by the time of the early empire, Augustus's time... This ritual was so old that people had completely forgotten the meaning of it or what it was supposed to signify, even though they still practiced it. And that's kind of on point because it was true for Janice as a god as well. Which brings us to how Janice was worshipped. And I just think that that story is so cool because... It seems like at some point there was some kind of human sacrifice element that involved people getting tossed into the Tiber.
1: You know, it's one of those things where like, I don't know, I grew up, as I've said before, very religious. And there are certain things in the religion that I grew up with that you just do and you don't ask questions
0: about. She still worships the Roman gods jupiter for example
1: (laughs) venus no i grew up i grew up roman catholic and like why do you say the rosary in this order why do you do this in this order like i don't know and my husband who did not grow up religious will ask me all the time he's like but why didn't you ask what the letters above jesus on the crucifix mean i was like "Mm -hmm." didn't seem like something i needed to know He's like, but but you could have just asked. I'm like, well, now I Google it. But like, I wasn't going to ask my parents or the priest something I probably should have known, but didn't. And I feel like that's the story here. The people were like, we should know why we're doing this, but we don't. And we're a little too afraid to ask someone else. So we're just going to go with it.
0: Surely everyone else knows why we're throwing 27 straw effigies of bound men into a river. Like this is an awfully specific action. Surely everyone knows why we do this. Right. Except me. Except me. And if I ask, are they going to throw me in? Strong possibility, yes.
1: (laughs) Anyway, Janus was the god of both beginnings and endings. And as the god of beginnings, his province was the first blush of dawn, the productive start of the day, the time of the day I hardly ever see. His was the first day of the month and the first month of the year. When listing the gods in their prayers, pious Romans always said his name first. When they invoked other gods, any other gods, they invoked Janus first. So Janus was a part of all religious rituals for all gods, no matter who or where or when. Oh, God, can you imagine praying to Aphrodite and having to invoke Janus first and then being like, Aphrodite, I need some help in the bedroom. And it's like, oh, God, Janus is listening.
0: You know who else is listening?
1: Helios. <laughs> Helios is a perv,
0: you guys. <laughs> anyway,
1: as the god of the beginning of all days, one of his epithets was, as we've said before to, in this episode, Morning Father. Morning Father morning father morning father
0: it's just too perky it's too perky for me
1: i don't know i feel like it's like the morning and like you're happy to be awake life is good should it just be like morning father
0: i want to do it like all like solemn and you want to do it like i don't know like super perky
1: anyway technically all the days of the calendar belong to janice in fact, the whole calendar belonged to him. He was the god of calendars, since he also ruled the passage of time. But there were a few days in the calendar that were particularly important to Janus. One was New Year's Day, or January 1st, as we've all come to know it. Here's how to conduct the first day of your year so that you can have an auspicious start to the rest of the year. We're giving you the, all the advice from the ancient Romans. Do with it what you will.
0: First, devote some time during the day to your usual routine, but be sure to exchange cheerful good wishes with your friends, family, neighbors, and whoever else you encounter. Morning father! <laughs> morning father. We're Our morning fathers are diametrically opposed
1: is <laughs> like so you're like a very formal small child who's like morning father i must now go and work on the ranch or I'd be sent off to boarding school and i'm like morning father gonna go work on the ranch or maybe i'm going back to boarding school we're both in oliver twist but we're just different orphans apparently
0: anyway so you're also supposed to exchange gifts but nothing too expensive just small things Dates, figs, and honey. And I tell you what, I would love it if people gave me dates, figs, and honey on New Year's or Christmas. Just that sounds awesome.
1: I don't like dates and figs, but I'm here for that honey.
0: Anyway, people would also exchange strunae, or twigs from the sacred grove at the top of the Via Sacra, which was the main street of Rome. Dedicated to the goddess Strenia, who was the goddess of the New Year. She was originally a Sabine goddess. There was a lot of overlap here.
1: Makes a lot of sense, the Sabine goddess and how we've, like, looked at how the Sabines are associated with Janice. Was the goddess of the New Year and is now, you know, mixed into this ceremony. Yeah, and Well, who do you think the Sabine women would have been worshipping? They're not going to worship the fucking Roman gods. They're going to worship their own gods.
0: Anyway. You should also make a sacrifice to Janus on New Year's Day. No animal sacrifices, please. The god prefers spelt cakes and pure salt.
1: Another important time in the worship of Janus was the beginning and end of the war season. Janus was the god of the start of wars, and also the god of their ending. You know, beginnings and endings. His was the transition from peace to war and war to peace. The ancient Roman war machine was seasonal. War season lasted from March to October. This is why Julius Caesar surprised everybody by kicking off his civil war in the winter. This was just not done for a variety of reasons, including the safety of yourself and your troops. So two important rites to Janus occurred in March and October to mark the beginning and the end of the season of war.
0: These were the rites of the Salii. Descriptions of the rituals are extremely confusing and fragmentary and seem to also involve Mars. In fact, the Sali were the leaping priests of Mars. In Roman lore, these rites were introduced by King Numa, who was a mythical king of Rome who lived prior to Rome becoming a republic. He was, I think, the successor to Romulus, I think. And most of what we know about the history of Rome prior to the time of the republic is mythology. They had this mythical king period that is not backed up by any archaeology that I'm aware of. Rome existed for three or four centuries roughly before becoming a republic in 509 BC. And historians and archaeologists are not 100% clear on exactly who was ruling when and what they were up to. But there's all these myths about people like Romulus and King Numa and Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus! So Numa, as I said, was, I think, the second king of Rome. So he was almost as ancient as Romulus. But the roots of this ritual may go back all the way to Mycenaean times. The Sali, the Leaping Priests, were 12 young men from patrician families dressed in extremely old-fashioned armor, including embroidered tunics and breastplates, a short red cloak, and a bronze shield shaped like an ancient Mycenaean figure-eight shield.
1: Some historians believe that the rites involved a very ancient war dance, and this would make sense considering the Sali were Leaping Priests but it seems clear that this was a ritual from very deep prehistory, with an original meaning that had been lost by Roman times. There were, and still are, a number of jani in Rome, freestanding archways that were kind of ceremonial gates, specifically for lucky entrances and exits. Roman armies always made sure to march through a janus on their way to battle, and there were right and wrong ways to do this.
0: Yeah, I tried to find an instruction manual of some kind for a right and wrong way to march through a Janus. Like they have these, you can still see some of them in in Rome today. These archways that were there for auspicious entrances and exits. Normal people could walk through them, but also they sent armies marching through them on their way to campaigns. And I couldn't find any details about how to march through Janus and how not to march through Janus. If anyone knows anything about it, please let me know. If there's enough info, I would do a Patreon episode on this easily because it's interesting, but I don't know that there's enough info to fill up a Patreon episode. Anyway, so one detail I could find was that it was considered essential for returning armies to march through a Janus when they were back from war in order to reintegrate them into society. Although how this worked with the various laws and prohibitions barring Roman armies from entering the city of Rome and sometimes the entire Italian peninsula, I have no idea. And I think those rules were just around
1: to be broken anyway. So I have thoughts. I have two thoughts on this. Ready? My guess is when they were, like, entering these gates particularly, it might have been a checkpoint. You might have just had to give over your arms as soon as you got in. There might have been someone there collecting it and putting them under lock and key. And, you know, you were a soldier in the city, in the capital, but you were not allowed to have your arms. I also have thoughts on that because you had all those triumphs where people would march in their full military regalia, presumably through these arches. And then at some point in time, you would not want all of these armed soldiers to have that gear. So there would have had to have been a place where you then... Took that gear back from those people.
0: I think there's something to the ceremony of a triumph, you know, because I think, I'm not 100% sure, I haven't figured this out, but I'm assuming that part of the triumph involved marching through a Janus at the start of it. So that would have been like a ceremonial reintegration of this army to peacetime or to civilian society, is a thought of mine.
1: They're putting aside what they did in war to come back during peacetime.
0: But that's kind of part of it is like the pollution of war. you know, They're like leaving that aside so they can re-enter civilian society.
1: My other thought actually has to do with the exiting the city through ajanus when you're going to war. And I think a lot of that, to me, comes from being a very anxiety-ridden wife. Like, if my husband was marching off to war and there was a right way to march to war, and even though I have no control over anything, and he has no control over anything, but if he marches through that gate and he's done what's right by the gods above, I'm going to feel better about it.
0: Yeah, it's a way to maintain control in a situation where you have absolutely no control.
1: Yeah, I get it. So one of Janice's most important structures in ancient Rome was a place called the Janiculum. The Janiculum was... Not so much a building or a temple as an open air enclosure, with one doorway facing east and one facing west. The doors were open during times of war and closed during times of peace. So as you can imagine, they were open a lot. In ancient Rome, each of the most important gods with official state cults had its own high priest called a flamen. There were different numbers of these depending on the time in history. During the Republic, there were 18. Remember, Julius Caesar was elected Flaminialis at 16 at the beginning of his career.
0: Which I think was the Flamen of Jupiter, which would have been a really highly placed spot. He had somebody pull in strings for him.
1: Mama Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Later in Augustus' time, Julius Caesar got his own state cult with his own Flamen. During the empire, all emperors got their own state cults with their own Flamen. Together, all the Flamens made up the Pontifical College the high priests of all the state cults who administered the state religion. All the religious festivals, rites, and so on went through them.
0: Janus didn't have a flamen of his own or any priest specifically dedicated to him. However, there was a priestly official called the Rex Sacrorum, Rex Sacrorum, or King of the Sacred Rites, who personally carried out Janus' rituals and ceremonies. The King of the Sacred Rites, ranked higher than all of the Flamen, he was kind of the high king of all the priests in Roman religion. But he was basically a figurehead, like he didn't have any political power. Some historians believe that the King of the Sacred Rites was actually an old vestigial remnant of Etruscan kingship from before Rome was a republic. The theory goes that in ancient Etruscan times, like, say, the 800s BC or prior, kings held both priestly and non-priestly roles.
1: Yeah, well, we see that again when we get to Mithras, right? The cult of Mithras is all about making the emperor the top of your, your cult, your religion.
0: I mean, it's kind of true in the empire time period, too. Like, the emperor had to also be a god. Mm-hmm.
1: So when the ancient Romans... Got rid of kings and made themselves a republic, they kept this sort of figurehead role to embody the kingly religious leadership without having any actual practical powers. This person was the highest ranking priest in Rome, but the position was depoliticized and, as we've said, basically a figurehead. This is just one theory, but it's fascinating to think that there was a connection between this conceivably ancient priestly role, one that might go all the way back to the beginning of the republic itself. And a god that probably also predated the Romans. Because Janus was an ancient god, definitely older than Rome itself.
0: Some historians believe that Janus was once an important sky god or creator god in very ancient times. Maybe he was worshipped by the Etruscans or the Latians or whoever you can consider the predecessors of the Romans to be. Janus may have had ancient origins indeed, going back thousands of years to an old proto-italic or even Indo-European predecessor. There are some clues about the nature of this god as the top god of all the gods, the daddy god, the morning father. We find these clues in Janus's epithets, preserved in fragments of ancient Roman writings from Macrobius and Varro. These cultic epithets are, they're kind of little nicknames, Janus isn't the only god in the pantheon that has them. A lot of gods have them, goddesses too. These cultic epithets are extra names that Janus and most other Roman gods have and goddesses that give clues about what facet of that god the people are worshiping right then. When we don't know much else about how a god was worshiped, these names can give us valuable windows into how they were perceived.
1: Some of Janus's cultic epithets include Pater, gatekeeper, keeper of time, most powerful and best of kings. Father of the gods, and so on. Another was Divom Deus, an epithet in extremely ancient Latin that meant God of gods or the God's God. So Janus' mythology, even in Roman times, was fragmentary and contradictory. He was the God of passages and doorways, keyholes, and thresholds. His symbols were the staff and the key. He was said to be a God of money for some reason and the very earliest coins ever printed in Rome had his two-faced head on them. He could be found at all corners of the earth. But some Roman myths say he was an original king of Latium, who brought learning and civilization to his people. Other myths say that he was the original creator god who made all the other gods. Just as he was there at the beginning of Rome's founding, he was there at the beginning of all existence, and he will be there at the end.
0: In a way, Janus was the god of everything and he was everywhere in Roman religion, baked into the seams, part of the background static. But he didn't even have his own flamen and state cult, which is weird. My theory, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, I'm not making it up this time, is that even the Romans didn't really get Janus, as he was so old that most of his mythology and significance had been lost at time or changed. The Romans were superstitious people, known for clinging to ancient traditions just in case, even when they no longer fully understood them, According to Robin Taylor in their article Watching the Skies, Janus, Auspication, and the Shrine in the Roman Forum, quote, Janus, like so many ancient gods who lacked the grace of a story, was a messy concrescence of scraps fallen from the table of memory. His incoherence was the cause of some puzzlement in the Roman imperial era, and so he was periodically subjected to reassessments by master yarn spinners like Ovid, or by cosmologists and philosophers seeking to find profound symbolism in his duality.
1: Janus was linked with Saturn in some mythology. There are fragmentary myths that say Janus, as a founding king of Latium, agreed to share his kingdom with Saturn in return for Saturn teaching him agriculture. The Romans named a hill near the city of Rome, the Janiculum, or the Janiculan Hill. It's not one of the main seven hills, but the Romans also believed that Janus occupied, or had once occupied, one of the most important hills, the Capitoline Hill. The other janiculum, the roofless enclosure, with the door at either end that the Romans left open during war and closed during peace, that stood in the Roman Forum, and it may have been one of the oldest buildings in the Forum. And tracing the history of the janiculum may help us trace the history of Janus's worship in Rome. The janiculum
0: was not a very big building. It was just big enough to hold a small bronze statue of Janus. Pliny tells us that the statue was making very distinctive gestures with his fingers that definitely were not flipping you the bird, but nobody knew what they meant.
1: Totally were. Probably. Absolutely.
0: Pliny speculates that the gestures were meant to symbolize the number 355, which is the number of days in the most ancient Roman calendar. I mean, keep believing that, Pliny. Keep telling yourself that. According to the scholar Procopius, quote, The temple is entirely of bronze and was erected in the form of a square, but it is only large enough to cover the statue of Janus, of bronze and not less than five cubits high. This building may have been built of brick with bronze over it. A fragment of its brick wall still stands in the Roman Forum, near the Basilica Aemilia, which was probably built several hundred years later. The important thing wasn't what was inside, but its two gates facing east and west, According to Roman lore, when the gates were closed, they held in Discord and Fury, the gods, and when they were open, they unleashed them on the world,
1: and Rome was at war. The Janiculum was kind of a weird building. The Romans themselves didn't seem to know exactly when or why it was built. Their mythology says that Romulus built it himself in the 800s BC, after the Romans and the Sabines became allies to represent that gate that Janus had filled with hot water to drown the attacking Sabines in that version of the myth. I'm sure the Sabines just wanted to relive that all the time. Fuck you, Romulus. Anyway, moving on. There's another myth. (laughs) Just, I can't. There's another myth that Numa built it. Quite a bit of Janus lore in ancient Rome goes back to Numa. According to Livy, Numa built the Janiculum as part of a project to civilize the violent, warlike early Romans. His larger aim was to get everyone to calm the fuck down by making them more religious. Because that's going to work. I don't know any wars that ever started over religion. Numa had a bunch of temples built, established priesthoods and state cults, and promoted participation in festivals to encourage people to be more religious and keep people busy doing non-war things, whatever those things were. The Janiculum was said to be Numa's grandest building. You mean you want us to do non War... things? Because it's, 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 it's all war and committing genocide and war crimes?
0: Psychological torture? Is that what we're talking
1: about? <laughs> now
0: we're talking! <laughs> and Numa's like, no, 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 no. It's not what I'm talking about.
1: But could it be?
0: <laughs> oh, good lord. Moving on. Numa and Romulus are both mythical, but this would, theoretically, if this was based in some kind of measure of truth, give the geniculum a date of around the 700s or 800s BC, maybe... It would also make sense if Janus, or an older ancestor of Janus, was already a very powerful god in the area, and the new Romans wanted to make sure they honored him in their new city so he wouldn't, like, smite them or whatever.
1: Again, didn't we see this during um, the Roman conquest of Britain with Camulus?
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's, you know, appropriating local gods.
1: Yeah, and, and also making sure that you appropriate them in such a way that sort of you've honored them so that they're not angry with you.
0: yeah. But we have images of the Temple of Janus on ancient Roman coins dating from Nero's time. And according to scholars and archaeologists, the style of architecture... So there's one theory that says it the, you know, geniculum could be from the seven or 800s BC. Maybe I made that theory up. But we have images of the Temple of Janus on ancient Roman coins dating from Nero's time. And according to scholars and archaeologists, the style of architecture would date the temple to maybe the third or fourth centuries bc
1: so considerably newer these images also negate the claim from procopius that the temple was sheathed in bronze in these coins it's made from ashlar masonry with no bronze visible the assumption is that the inside walls might have been bronze plated also procopius was writing from the 500s a.d so he lived almost 500 years after nero did Maybe the temple was sheathed in bronze by his time, but probably not in Nero's. Anyway, according to the lore, the doors of the Janiculum were kept shut during Numa's mythological reign because Numa was a wise ruler who never needed to go to war. He had everybody doing stuff that wasn't war and being very confused.
0: And that's how he kept the peace by confusing the
1: Romans, essentially. But after that, things devolved. <laughs> The next guy to come to power, Tellus Hostilius, I mean, his name is an absolute, like, giveaway as to how it went, was a war hawk. He opened those gates right the fuck up, and he went to war with the neighboring community of Alba Longa, and he warred all the time.
0: After that, the Romans stayed warlike, and the gates stood open, moving from mythology to recorded history. In the next four centuries or so, they were only closed a handful of times. Once was after the First Punic War in 421 BC. It happened a few times again in Augustus's reign starting in 29 BC after he defeated Cleopatra and Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium. Apparently... If an ancient Roman emperor did happen to close the gates of Janus, he would make a giant stinking deal about it. He'd mint coins to commemorate the affair. And then he'd open them right back up again because he wanted to go to war again.
1: Oh, yeah. 20 minutes later, because again, (laughs) the people were like, wait, what do we do? Do we build more siege towers? Do we do we march for 20 or 30 miles a day and then build a whole camp and then dismantle it in the morning and then do it again the next day? What do we do? And you know what
0: the army will do when it's confused about not being at war. Eventually, if it gets confused enough, it'll kill the emperor and make somebody else emperor. You gotta keep those boys busy. So, Augustus was not a huge fan of war himself.
1: Oh, really? No. Yeah,
0: shocker. Roman leaders were supposed to be competent generals, but Augustus kept finding elaborate excuses to just miss his own wars, leaving his buddy Agrippa to handle things. He was very committed to ushering in a period that later historians would call the Pax Romana, a period of peace in the empire that lasted from, I guess, roughly 27 BC to 14 AD. It was said that Augustus bragged once that he was aware the doors of Janus had been closed only twice since Rome's founding, but during his reign, they were closed three times. Historians have pinpointed two out of three of these dates that the gates were closed during Augustus' reign. Probably they were 29 and 25 BC. The third is still a matter of controversy.
1: Other emperors closed the gates of Janus and made a big, huge deal about it. Nero did, after one of his wars, and minted a ton of coins with the janiculum on it to celebrate. This is how we know what the building probably looked like today, is from those coins. But then came Christianity. In 380 AD, Christianity became the official state religion of Rome, under Theodosius I. Ten years later, Theodosius banned all non-Christian cults throughout the empire, temples were abandoned, torn down and closed, their riches stripped, their priesthoods vacated and their secrets forgotten. The doors of the geniculum were closed and probably padlocked shut for the last time. Although not quite the last time. By the 500s AD, the Roman Empire had been long divided into east and west. The Western Empire, once the red beating heart of the empire, had fallen into the hands of the Gothic kings. It was now the Ostrogothic Kingdom of Italy. The Eastern Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, limped on, led by the emperor Justinian I. He wanted to restore Rome to its former glory and regain everything that had been lost over the centuries. His first order of business was reclaiming Italy, the heart of Rome and the city itself, from the Ostrogoths. He ultimately won, sort of, But this has later been viewed by historians as a Pyrrhic victory. Just a century later, not only the West, but large parts of the Eastern Empire were lost to invaders.
0: It's hard to mark the exact date of the fall of the Roman Empire. Historians debate this all the time, and some say it never really fell at all. It just changed into something different. That may be true, especially in the East. But if you did want to put a date on it, there are a few places you could do it. One might be 410 A.D., the year Alaric of the Visigoths sacked Rome. Another might be 475 A.D., the year the last Western Roman Empire, Romulus Augustulus, was deposed by the Ostrogothic warlord Odoacer, I guess that's how you say his name, and allowed to live out his life in genteel exile in Naples. But I want to offer another date, 536 A.D. Justinian was about a year into his attempt to retake the West from its new Gothic rulers, Justinian's top general, Belisarius, had crossed into Italy at Regium, right at the toe of the boot, and then marched north.
1: Although Belisarius was trying to recapture Italy for Rome, his troops were largely Gothic, Celtic, and other quote-unquote barbarian auxiliaries. Probably many of the same people as the Goths who held Italy. They sacked Naples on their way up the boot, and by the time they showed up outside the gates of Rome, the stories of their vicious sacking had traveled far ahead. The Roman citizens didn't want any trouble. They opened their gate without a fight.
0: The Gothic king Vitiges, based in Ravenna, far north of Rome, rallied a force to meet Belisarius in battle. Belisarius knew he was vastly outnumbered, so he holed up his troops in the ancient city amidst the ruins of its greatness and waited for Vitiges to come to him. The ensuing siege lasted a year. It's said that at some point during that brutal year, in the dead of night, somebody, no one knows who, snuck up to the Janiculum, padlocked for two centuries by decree of Theodosius, and flung open the gates of Janus. In this way, just as he was there for the beginning of Rome, Janus was there to mark its end. So that's it for this week. Happy New Year!
1: (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone! Yeah, we hope that all the things that you wish for and work for in 2022 come your way. We wish you just a wonderful new beginning and, uh, you know, kind of ignore Janice's head that's still looking at 2021.
0: Anyway, join us in the new year when we talk about whatever we're talking about next. It's 2022. We have no idea.
1: It's going to be a continuation of this incredible season that Jenny has put together and I've helped with and I'm working at the second half of the season I'm working on a lot of sex magic and Helen of Troy stuff so I'm super excited for what's coming so um
0: where can they find us online Jen
1: so you can find us on twitter at ancient hist fan and you can find us on facebook and instagram at ancient history fangirl and As you may or may not be tidying things up to end your year and start your year in a lovely new way, please consider leaving us a five-star review if you like what we do. They do actually make a difference. We don't ask for them that often, but it would be great to get some new ones to start 2022 on the right foot.
0: We also have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen?
1: We do, and that's also a plug if you would like to support our Patreon. You know where you can find it, on our website.
0: Or patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl, where you will get lots of extra content and episodes that you don't get on the main feed. So, here are some Patreon members to thank. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Jamie Estes.
1: Katie Dawkins.
0: Kieran. Just Kieran. Christopher Mick G. Annie A. Amayi Morales. Sophie Terrell.
1: Theo Adler.
0: Verdi. Just Verdi.
1: Michelle Amick, Aaron M. And Lizwa.
0: Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast and thank you for listening and we will see you next week.